0: I'm Janet Ellis, and this is Twice Upon a Time, where each week I invite a guest to come and chat with me about their favourite childhood book. They often bring along their own battered copy. This is a podcast to celebrate that magical book which cast a spell over us, and often still has us in its thrall. Welcome to Twice Upon a Time, and I'm delighted to say that my guest today is Victoria Hislop, author of many splendid books, but particularly The Island. And I nearly said The Wonderful Island, but that's the wrong title of the book. But it's <laughs> the Wonderful The Island doesn't sound quite right, but it is. Obviously, it was a number one bestseller, but it is such a great book. And you've chosen an, an extraordinary book for us today. Tell me, tell me the title and the author, please. It's called I Am David. And the author is Anne Holm.
1: When did you get your copy of it? Well, it was first read to me when I was a child. So at that point, I didn't have my own copy because it was a teacher.
0: How old were you? I was 10 years old. When you say you, were, you, were, you had it read to you at school, I mean, was yeah. that something that you enjoyed anyway? Or was it this particular book that really sang out? Or was it a particularly good reading of it? Because sometimes that can be a bit <laughs> fidget making, can't it, when you're 10?
1: Yes. Well, we had a teacher who every afternoon read to us. And it was in those days when you had the same teacher for every single lesson. It was a primary school that I went to down in Kent. And she was called Mrs. Harrison. And I still remember her incredibly vividly. She was a very, not just a kind teacher, but she was a very good teacher. And she had two sons of her own. So she wasn't a teacher who was sort of a bit remote from how children thought and behaved. She was very tuned in to us. So I think in that way, it sort of went in very deeply. I think it sort of turned me into a grown up. You know, everything else that we did at school at that stage really was quite childlike. You know, we were doing all the basic three R's. It was a very simple school quite unsophisticated and in every class obviously you had a whole range of abilities and suddenly I felt something or somebody was talking very directly to me and uh, that was the words of this book you know the first person that you know you're very conscious of this child and you really get into his character and I felt that he was really talking to me
0: but I can always feel you getting towards that point in the day each day, that sort of special tingle yes, of excitement. absolutely. Of... It was exciting. And one of the things, again, particularly
1: remember, I don't know whether she did it with all the books, she came from the other side of her desk and she sat on the front of the desk. She literally perched on the desk. Um, and she was very slim, very, very, very attractive woman. Rather beautiful, really, very sort of fine and elegant so i just always remember the way she even sat to read to us it was the sort of informal part of the day she became a narrator rather than teacher she stopped being the teacher and became someone else and i think she really enjoyed reading that's
0: extraordinary because knowing your books the, the the physical sense of them is always very strong. You know, obviously, location is incredibly important and the physicality of the people in the landscapes that you're describing. And the way you're talking about her now, is obviously incredibly important that she was placed where she was and looked like she did. And the yes. story is almost, she's the conduit for the story, isn't she? Yeah, absolutely. Totally. Did you read much at home? Were you a little reader girl? Um, I did, but my
1: memory of childhood reading is... But it was very limited, you know, and I talk to children of that age now that um, I was then and they're reading, you know, Harry Potter and Philip Pullman and Michael Morpurgo. You know, we didn't have any of these giants. You know, we had Noel Strepfield. you know, bless her heart, ballet shoes. And it was all, <laughs> you know, and we had Enid Blyton, unlimited endless Enid Blyton and they were quite exciting and then we had the sort of more tomboyish Swallows and Amazon type books but none of them spoke to me at all you know I read them because that was what our diet was just the same way we had shepherd's pie a lot you know food and reading were basic in the 1960s early 1970s. we are contemporaries yeah. Hmm. (laughs) And I don't know whether you remember Anything particularly nourishing, but I really don't. You know, I don't remember until I got to Agatha Christie, which obviously is again borderline for grown-ups. That's when I discovered, wow, stories that I couldn't put down. But I
0: don't remember ever feeling that way about Enid Blyton. I love Enid Blyton being the shepherd's pie of children's literature. Yeah, no, she she
1: was. It's you know, we had to stay alive. Um, <laughs> and that was it that was our that was our diet but to me you know this Anne Home story was just
0: in a completely other league. We'll, we'll get on to the, the, the meat of the book in a minute mm-hmm. but just just describe your the, the handsome household were, were you a family of readers did you have brothers and sisters who were squirrelling books away? Um, not really my parents
1: had a lot of books on their shelves. I don't remember ever seeing my parents sitting reading a book, oddly. You know, my father was a journalist, but I don't remember him being into literature at all, and nor my mother. I really don't remember her reading. So I think my sister and I shared books. We're very close in age. She's just 18 months older than me. Yes, it was just something that I did, but I wasn't a bookworm at all. Definitely not. There was always something else I preferred doing, like basket weaving. I love making, I've got, <laughs> I used to make waste paper baskets for everyone. I was quite kind of interested in doing more
0: craft things. That was more my thing than reading. Did your family find that eventually they had too many waste paper baskets? <laughs> yeah, I used to give them to all my relatives for Christmas. <laughs> because I think I was quite a strange child. He collector's items now, of course, absolutely. <laughs> well, I can't segue into the book from that. But, but tell, tell me the story of I Am David, uh, as simply as you as you can, Victoria. I no, that's asking a lot. Wow, well, as simply as I
1: can and without crying. Um, <laughs> well, the David of the book's title is a 12-year-old boy. And there are many things that you're not told because there are many things that he himself doesn't know. But he's grown up, been born and or gone at a very, very early age into uh, some kind of prison camp. And we sort of conclude that this is somewhere behind the Iron Curtain and for some reason he's been incarcerated there for his entire life and it's a very brutal regime. We imagine it's something like a concentration camp, but it's post-war. And one night, for some Actually never really explained reasons, although it's hinted at. He's given the opportunity to escape by a prison camp guard who he has no trust in. He thinks it's a trick. He hates him, doesn't he? He absolutely hates him. He hates this man, but for some reason, which we will sort of discover vaguely later on, he's given a chance to go under the wire and run for his life. And he's given a simple package of survival uh, mechanisms, the most important of which is a compass. And he's told to head north. And that's it. And he's 12. And he has, I think, maybe a little bit of money, but almost none, and a bit of bread. And that's about it. So off he goes. And he's been told to get to Salonika, which is today's Thessaloniki in northern Greece. So we know it must have been somewhere near the Greek border there and on the way he meets both cruel and kind people and he never knows what's going to happen you know literally as we don't as the reader it's a roller coaster because one minute he seems to be home and dry with people who love him and then something happens and he has to leave until he gets to this final destination which I'm not going to say what it is because it, it's such a sort of plot spoiler
0: (laughs) we can we can absolutely give away endings here by the way victoria don't worry about that there's no plot spoilers here because if people know the book they will know it and if they don't we're not revealing anything except how you feel about it so don't (laughs) don't worry about that um okay i'm I'm going right back to the the beginning of the book where Mm. you are given Mm. so few clues about where he is one of the first things you feel very strongly on his behalf is this sense of hate and mistrust. And it isn't until quite a long way into the book that that the friend Johannes, who was something of a seer to him really, revealed Mm -hmm. the, the truth of humanity in the brief time he was allowed because Johannes himself dies. But his initial decisions about people are obviously, and not surprisingly, based on mistrust. Mm. So much so that when, when the guard says, you know, you can go and gives him this tiny window of opportunity to escape mm. and he tells him to head to a tree and there'll be a bundle to help him survive and the bundle is bread, the compass and soap, actually, soap, soap. features, yes, soap features quite a lot in the book. Very, very important. Yeah, But yeah. he wonders if it's a bomb. You know, so at every mm. stage of the book, and there are many, many more, it's a slim volume, but nevertheless, right the way through is this seam of deep, Febrile anxiety. Did did you Mm. feel that when when it was being read to you, or or did you have a sense of ultimate comfort? Because I I really, I had not read this book before, so I did not know what was going to happen to him. So I was really on his journey all the way through, and I was trying to think (laughs) ridiculously. You know, how would I have felt reading it as a child? And I wonder whether it would have made me feel either that I was him or that I wanted (laughs) to protect him, and I couldn't decide. Gosh, I think I feel that I'm him. I really
1: do. Because I think it's so well written, although it's interesting, actually, that she didn't write it in the first person because it's called I Am David. And it's almost as though she has written in the first person, but she's written it from outside. I mean, perhaps it just gave her a greater freedom with her writing or something. But it is as if I felt I was David. And now that you say that, I mean, my children tell me that I am a very anxious person. And I don't I don't identify with that particularly, but I do think a little bit like David, I often think, gosh, you know, if there's a an unidentified sort of bundle in the street, I'm more likely to think that's a bomb than a box of treasure that somebody's dropped. You know, I, I'm slightly would err towards the doubt than the expectation of something good. And I think how he has grown up has made him so fundamentally Mistrustful. He's obviously had so much emotional and physical hardship. He doesn't know how to smile, does he? He doesn't know how. That's the big thing. Oh. For many months, he doesn't know how to react to other people and he has to learn how to smile. And that's incredibly touching. It is almost as if the writer has gone through that experience. It's about if one met this man now as, as a grown-up, he's probably gone through, you know, therapy twice a week for decades,
0: you know, to try and... Several marriages, I know. Yeah, <laughs> no, he.
1: he I, I'm not sure he'll ever be um, really cleansed of all that fear and anxiety. You know, I think we all know that from children who have very difficult beginnings, that it takes a great deal to allow them to overcome what's happened in the past.
0: Because this this journey of his really mm. allows Anne Home writing it to explore the five senses immensely. Yes. Because yes. what she senses is, you know, and you could almost feel her thinking, you know, if I'd been a prisoner for all of my life and released at yeah. 12... Would I be surprised by the view of the sea, the taste of an orange, the sound of different languages? So it's a really mm. immersive way of writing, isn't it? Which is, it is. which is actually quite unusual in, in something that where where the narrative is actually quite straightforward. You know, it's it's an adventure story, basically. Yes. But all these layers on top of it. And thinking about the way that you write and the fact that, as I said at the beginning, you know, this I get such a strong sense of place from your writing, and you know, the smell of it, the sound of it, the difference of it. So I wonder whether having this book, discovering this book, was the start of that journey into your own trajectory to writing, of, of how you can actually involve a reader in much more than words on the page, much more, Well, all, everything in place. To be absolutely honest, I think it had a, an even bigger influence than I've really
1: understood. When I reread it and I recalled, you know, how he remembers that very particular red flower do you remember that at this I think it somehow came into the prison camp or grew somewhere near, so it was the only colored, and it was just this tiny detail, one flower, a bright color. and when I am describing things, I don't try and do that, but I'm always quite interested in a tiny detail that can exponentially show something else, and for him, that flower is both a real flower but it's also a symbolic it's a huge event in his life i was thinking
0: when you were saying about the flower because when he rescues the little girl maria from the fire he describes her mm. as a flower so mm. it's it's cuz he's very porous in a way isn't he and and he can only yeah, he's a go sponge. back to what he, he's the absolute sponge, yes exactly isn't he? yes what he what he's been told in the camp and he obviously had something of education But the bits that are missing are the first time he hears children playing and realises that Mm -hmm. you can make those noises for no good reason. You can just be playing. And again, people laughing. She picks up on that, that he hears people laughing and it's not sinister. It doesn't doesn't understand it, really. Yes, it has no agenda. You know, it doesn't mean something horrible is being plotted at all. She Mm -hmm. races through, really, all the plot points of childhood, from being in a gang to being an outsider to... Absolutely falling in love with an animal. Totally get that. You know, yes. the dog King. Yes, to the to the sense of wanting to belong, despite the fact that you want to keep your identity. And he he keeps saying to people, "I am David." And one of the reasons he loves the little girl he rescued is because she doesn't say, "Where are you from?" She says, "Who are you?" And he finds that a much mm. more pertinent question. In fact, she originally called the
1: book something else, didn't she? And "I Am David" was the final title. So. The question of identity, it's a word that we use a lot more now. What is your identity? And for him, in a sense, it's the only thing he possesses is his name. It feels so modern if one does think about, you know, a refugee child landing on a strange shore. You know, it's still happening in 2022, and they get separated from their parents sometimes. And, you know, if they have their name... That's the only thing they have. And you know, it is fantastically contemporary, a lot of the themes in this book, quite extraordinarily so. And I hope teachers are
0: still reading it to their children, you know, their pupils. Especially especially la uh, Mrs. Harrison, nicely, mm, and, the, other, and yes. the right side of the desk. Yeah, Because um, she, was, she was writing at a time when there were still internment camps in the Soviet Union, and although she's not specific about where David comes from, there is mm. a suggestion, as you say, that it's the Eastern Bloc. And as you say, it's, it's still going on now. Remarkably, though, because um, I always like to find out about the writer and there's so little about her. There's so little mm. about her. And and uh, she really played her cards very close to her chest. She had she had a couple of children. She had some grandchildren. She wrote this book. It won some prizes. But she, yes. she did write other books, none of which um, achieved the same sort of success or stayed in print. And she also had a an extraordinary pseudonym, sort of man's name for a while, but I couldn't find a single thing she'd ever written as him. Mm. So, mm. obviously, this this book was, and it happens sometimes with writers, doesn't it, where ev- everything they ever want to say is here. Yeah. This is it. It's, yeah. you know, it's a perfect circle of a book. Whichever way it lands, it will reveal something to you. Yes. And she was obviously, um, it sounds as if she was working out a lot of her own childhood. I mean, when the kids are discussing school, for example... And they're going, oh, I don't really want to go to school. And David is absolutely perplexed by the idea that there would be this special place set up for you to go each day to learn stuff. And you wouldn't want to be there. That Mm. sounds quite a (laughs) lot like possibly little Anne
1: to me. Yes, there must be a little. Obviously, she wasn't in an internment camp. But I feel to to write your way into this child's mind must be a little bit of autobiography in there it feels like it doesn't it yes I mean we'll we'll never know people say that any novel has an element of autobiography because he is very grown up for a you know he has he's never really had a childhood I suppose that's the, the point he's been deprived of that idyllic childhood that you see in the Italian household where they're you know very wealthy and they have toys and everything that a child could possibly want. And silver candlesticks. Yes. And, and yes. Sort of oh, love. this must be
0: silver. <laughs> yeah, the love of
1: these parents, you yes. know. If you allow yourself to feel it really deeply, you know, you, you could weep on every page of this book. I think as an adult, it's almost more painful to read than when you're a child. I felt even more, I should say, moved by it, reading it as a child. You know, when you've had your own children, you think, gosh, you know, all the love that you give your children. And he, he hasn't had a, a second of that.
0: That's just devil's advocate for a tiny minute mm-hmm. here. One, one of the other themes, which I found a little bit puzzling, is the fact that she, he, David, is very judgmental about the notion of intelligence. <laughs> At one point, she even says, you know, you can tell what a person is like you could always tell from people's faces whether they were intelligent or not. And you know, the, the driver who gives him a lift is, you know, he decides is a simple soul, you know, and doesn't want any more from life. And I yeah. thought as reading it as a child, you don't think like that necessarily. And also as a child, I think you are fantastically um, non-selective in your reading. So you just read stuff. You're not you're mm. not judging one page by another and you're not trying to double-think what the writer intended. But it all the way through the book, and it is—it's quite a strange theme. Yes, he
1: often describes people as stupid. Yeah. doesn't he? Yes, maybe that's realistic with children, but maybe there's another word. I don't know. I think what he means is uneducated, isn't he? Here we are. So actually, I underline this place where he—he he looks. This is a, a man who gives him some bread, and again, he's suspicious because he's—you know—he thinks it's a trap. And he looked up into the man's face and saw it was just like the sailor's, the same slightly stupid expression, the same good natured eyes. But maybe, you know, David is making this kind of equation between someone being kind and them being simple. And if they're more intelligent, perhaps they're more likely not to be generous. I'm not sure quite what she's doing there, but she definitely. Equates stupidity with good nature. I don't know.
0: One doesn't like to. <laughs> well, of course, this this book is is translated, and, and as yeah. I'm sure you know only too well, yes. it, was, it was it is almost impossible to know. Maybe the
1: the language is what's lost in translation. Yeah, absolutely.
0: But if you you strip away, and obviously that's a stupid thing to say because it is the fibre of the... But if you strip away the fact that he is escaping from something terrible, Mm. it is a proper adventure story. You know, Mm. he's learning how to survive in the wild, which, um, although I would have been utterly hopeless as as a young person, and indeed now, there's that fantasy that you would be suddenly free in the world, that the only thing to guide you would be the light of the stars, that the only thing you needed to know was that you had to somehow get some food, earn a bit of money, and he's he's mm. living on his wits, which is when you have no agency as a child is always immensely appealing, isn't it? <laughs> yes.
1: I mean it's what a- Enid Blyton does yes. in a way, or swallows an Amazon. You know, they're all going on their pretend sort of survival courses and doing it, but you know, there's mum and dad coming to pick them up at the end. It's nothing like David's adventure, is it? <laughs> it's all a but bit I tame. It was the-
0: that is the theme, isn't it? It's it's learning to trust, trust yourself and trust others, but also aim for safety. You know, don't mistrust yeah. safety. There is a place of safety that Definitely. will hold you. You know, and he has to learn that because he's never felt safe at no. all. The way he is. and he gets and he enslaved
1: has to... on when he's in East Germany. Yes, <laughs> he meets this sort of horrific farmer who who basically enslaves him. Yes. So, God, it is it is a role. I mean, that poor kid. I fully. Of... <laughs> I hope he was never real, but perhaps something, lots of things about him. And there are definitely, you know, children in the world now who are going through something of this experience even now. Yeah. And that is really,
0: you know, a shattering thought. The one thing that occurred to me, and obviously this may not be the forum for it, I am David, but you are. A witty woman, Doria, you you live in, I would imagine, a, a house of wit being married to me in his and your son is a queen. There, there, there really are many, many witty observations in this book. And I'm not saying, of course, that she should be making jokes about his situation, far no. from it. But I did, m- reading it now, I, I missed something of the. The generosity that Witter forwards, the sideways look. Now, maybe yeah. that she feels that his circumstances precluded that, but it obviously precluded it for absolutely everyone around him too. Did did you miss it? Not really, because I like serious books. Although, you know, I think sometimes if
1: you suddenly put a joke in the middle of a serious book, it looks ridiculous. But there was a, a moment where I really smiled, and I think the person observing his behaviour uh, smiles. And it's when he lays the table. Oh, yes. One moment of wit. Now, I did, I underlined right, it because in, I in loved the, it so much. In, the Swiss, very, in yeah. the Swiss household, yeah. In the Swiss household. And she's obviously gone off to cook him a simple meal. And yeah. then when she comes back in, he's laid the table like it's a banquet. And it's, yeah, and she, yeah she says, heaven preserve us, Exclaimed <laughs> the woman. And she came in and he'd not been able to find a white cloth. Or silver plates to put on the table but he's found another piece of cloth and he's put candlesticks from the chest of drawers and a, a beautiful black bowl and he picked a flower from outside the window and laid it in the bowl and it's just so sweet and he says where did you learn to set a table young man and David looked at her, I like it to look pretty I mean beautiful when I eat he said seriously it was just such a I mean, it was touching, but it was also it just a little splash of humor, thank God, in an otherwise
0: really very humorless book um, <laughs> it is thank you for introducing me to it because I didn't <laughs> know it at all, and I have to say, um, obviously I'm envious of your writing skill, but I'm also. Very envious of Dancing with the Stars, Victoria. Oh yes, oh, my well, goodness, that didn't have so much.
1: I think that had less
0: humour in it than I am, David. <laughs> Those are the campest <laughs> titles I have ever seen. They're fantastic, but yeah, but your your, your dancing was wonderful. Oh, I loved was such it. Fun.
1: I loved it. Well, it had to look fun because underneath it was a lot of astonishingly hard work and many packets of painkillers, which you never see. It was. The ultimate showbiz, just the, gl- the yeah, blister blasters
0: and, <laughs> and uh, physiotherapy. No. <laughs> thank you for that, that daylight on the magic. Thank you also for I Am David. It's been such a joy. Thank you so much. It's great to discuss it. <laughs> Greatest children's book ever. Thank you so much for listening. This has been Twice Upon a Time with me, Janet Ellis the producer is Caroline Raphael recording and post-production by John Wakefield and Diggory Waite all the titles mentioned are on the podcast show page and don't forget to follow us on Instagram at twice upon a pod for pictures of our guests and their brilliant books and if you like the show do recommend to a friend or leave us a review the executive producer is Claire Broughton and twice upon a time is a hat trick podcast